June 17th to June 23rd of Morning and Evening Daily Readings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. Ludwig. Morning and Evening Daily Readings by Charles Spurgeon. Morning, June 17. Help, Lord. Psalm 12, verse 1. The prayer itself is remarkable, for it is short, but seasonable, sententious, and suggestive. David mourned the fewness of faithful men, and therefore lifted up his heart in supplication. When the creature failed, he flew to the Creator. He evidently felt his own weakness, or he would not have cried for help but at the same time he intended honestly to exert himself for the cause of truth, for the word help is inapplicable where we ourselves do nothing. There is much of directness, clearness of perception, and distinctness of utterance in this petition of two words, much more indeed than in the long rambling outpourings of certain professors. The psalmist runs straight forward to his God with a well-considered prayer. He knows what he is seeking and where to seek it. Lord, teach us to pray in the same blessed manner. The occasions for the use of this prayer are frequent. In providential afflictions, how suitable it is for tried believers who find all helpers failing them. Students in doctrinal difficulties may often obtain aid by lifting up this cry of Help, Lord, to the Holy Spirit, the Great Teacher. Spiritual warriors in inward conflicts may send to the throne for reinforcements, and this will be a model for their request. Workers in heavenly labor may thus obtain grace in time of need. Seeking sinners in doubts and alarms may offer up the same weighty supplication. In fact, in all these cases, times, and places, this will serve the turn of needy souls. Help, Lord! will suit us living and dying, suffering or laboring, rejoicing or sorrowing. In Him our help is found. Let us not be slack to cry to Him. The answer to the prayer is certain, if it be sincerely offered through Jesus. The Lord's character assures us that He will not leave His people. His relationship as Father and Husband guarantee us His aid. His gift of Jesus is a pledge of every good thing, and His sure promise stands, Fear not, I will help thee. Evening, June 17th Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing ye unto it. Numbers chapter 21, verse 17 Famous was the well of beer in the wilderness, because it was the subject of a promise. This is the well whereof the Lord spake unto Moses, Gather the people together, and I will give them water. The people needed water, and it was promised by their gracious God. We need fresh supplies of heavenly grace, and in the covenant the Lord has pledged himself to give all we require. The well next became the cause of a song. Before the water gushed forth, cheerful faith prompted the people to sing. And as they saw the crystal fount bubbling up, the music grew yet more joyous. In like manner, we who believe the promise of God should rejoice in the prospect of divine revivals in our souls, and as we experience them, 
our holy joy should overflow. Are we thirsting? Let us not murmur, but sing. Spiritual thirst is bitter to bear, but we need not bear it. The promise indicates a well. Let us be of good heart and look for it. Moreover, the well was the center of prayer. Spring up, O well! What God has engaged to give, we must inquire after, or we manifest that we have neither desire nor faith. This evening, let us ask that the scripture we have read and our devotional exercises may not be an empty formality, but a channel of grace to our souls. Oh, that God the Holy Spirit would work in us all His mighty power, filling us with all the fullness of God. Lastly, the well was the object of effort. The nobles of the people digged it with their staves. The Lord would have us active in obtaining grace. Our staves are ill-adapted for digging in the sand, but we must use them to the utmost of our ability. Prayer must not be neglected. The assembling of ourselves together must not be forsaken. Ordinances must not be slighted. The Lord will give us His peace most plenteously, but not in a way of idleness. Let us then bestir ourselves to seek Him in whom are all our fresh springs. Morning, June 18th, Thy Redeemer, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5. Jesus, the Redeemer, is altogether ours and ours forever. All the offices of Christ are held on our behalf. He is king for us, priest for us, and prophet for us. Whenever we read a new title of the Redeemer, let us appropriate him as ours under that name as much as under any other. The shepherd's staff, the father's rod, the captain's sword, the priest's mitre, the prince's scepter, the prophet's mantle, all are ours. Jesus hath no dignity which he will not employ for our exaltation, and no prerogative which he will not exercise for our defense. His fullness of Godhead is our unfailing, inexhaustible treasure house. His manhood also, which he took upon him for us, is ours in all its perfection. To us our gracious Lord communicates the spotless virtue of a stainless character, to us he gives the meritorious efficacy of a devoted life. On us he bestows the reward procured by obedient submission and incessant service. He makes the unsullied garment of his life our covering beauty, the glittering virtues of his character our ornaments and jewels, and the superhuman meekness of his death our boast and glory. He bequeaths us his manger, from which to learn how God came down to man, and his cross, to teach us how man may go up to God. All his thoughts, emotions, actions, utterances, miracles, and intercessions were for us. He trod the road of sorrow on our behalf, and hath made over to us as his heavenly legacy the full results of all the labors of his life. He is now as much ours as heretofore, and he blushes not to acknowledge himself our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
Christ everywhere and every way is our Christ, forever and ever most richly to enjoy. O my soul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, call him this morning thy Redeemer. Evening, June 18th. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1. The heart of the believer is Christ's garden. He bought it with his precious blood, and he enters it and claims it as his own. A garden implies separation. It is not the open common. It is not a wilderness. It is walled around or hedged in. Would that we could see the wall of separation between the church and the world made broader and stronger. It makes one sad to hear Christians saying, Well, there is no harm in this, there is no harm in that, thus getting as near to the world as possible. Grace is at a low ebb in that soul which can even raise the question of how far it may go in worldly conformity. A garden is a place of beauty. It far surpasses the wild, uncultivated lands. The genuine Christian must seek to be more excellent in his life than the best moralist, because Christ's garden ought to produce the best flowers in all the world. Even the best is poor compared with Christ's deservings. Let us not put him off with withering and dwarf plants. The rarest, richest, choicest lilies and roses ought to bloom in the place which Jesus calls his own. The garden is a place of growth. The saints are not to remain undeveloped, always mere buds and blossoms. We should grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Growth should be rapid where Jesus is the husbandman and the Holy Spirit the dew from above. A garden is a place of retirement. So the Lord Jesus Christ would have us reserve our souls as a place in which he can manifest himself as he doth not unto the world. Oh, that Christians were more retired, that they kept their hearts more closely shut up for Christ. We often worry and trouble ourselves like Martha with much serving, so that we have not the room for Christ that Mary had, and do not sit at his feet as we should. The Lord grant the sweet showers of his grace to water his garden this day. Morning, June 19th. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Rich were the blessings of this day if all of us were filled with the Holy Ghost. The consequences of the sacred filling of the soul it would be impossible to overestimate. Life, comfort, light, purity, power, peace, and many other precious blessings are inseparable from the Spirit's benign presence. As sacred oil, he anoints the head of the believer, sets him apart to the priesthood of saints, and gives him grace to execute his office aright. As the only truly purifying water, he cleanses us from the power of sin and sanctifies us unto holiness, working in us to will and to do of the Lord's good pleasure. As the light, he manifested to us at first our lost estate, and now he reveals the Lord Jesus to us and in us, and guides us in the way of righteousness. Enlightened by his pure celestial ray, 
we are no more darkness but light in the Lord. As fire, he both purges us from dross and sets our consecrated nature on a blaze. He is the sacrificial flame by which we are enabled to offer our whole souls as a living sacrifice unto God. As heavenly dew, he removes our barrenness and fertilizes our lives. Oh, that he would drop from above upon us at this early hour. Such morning dew would be a sweet commencement for the day. As the dove, with wings of peaceful love, he broods over his church and over the souls of believers, and as a comforter he dispels the cares and doubts which mar the peace of his beloved. He descends upon the chosen as upon the Lord in Jordan, and bears witness to their sonship by working in them a filial spirit by which they cry, Abba, Father. As the wind, he brings the breath of life to men. Blowing where he listeth, he performs the quickening operations by which the spiritual creation is animated and sustained. Would to God that we might feel his presence this day and every day. Evening, June 19th. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, Turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Surely, if there is a happy verse in the Bible, it is this. My beloved is mine, and I am his. So peaceful, so full of assurance, so overrunning with happiness and contentment is it, that it might well have been written by the same hand which penned the twenty-third psalm. Yet, though the prospect is exceeding fair and lovely, earth cannot show its superior, it is not entirely a sunlit landscape. There is a cloud in the sky which casts a shadow over the scene. Listen. Until the day break and the shadows flee away. There is a word, too, about the mountains of Bether, or the mountains of division, and to our love anything like division is bitterness. Beloved, this may be your present state of mind. You do not doubt your salvation. You know that Christ is yours. But you are not feasting with Him. You understand your vital interest in Him, so that you have no shadow of a doubt of your being His, and of His being yours. But still his left hand is not under your head, nor doth his right hand embrace you. A shade of sadness is cast over your heart, perhaps by affliction, certainly by the temporary absence of your Lord. Even so, while exclaiming, I am his, you are forced to take to your knees and to pray, Until the day break and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved. Where is he? asked the soul. And the answer comes, He feedeth among the lilies. If we would find Christ, we must get into communion with His people. We must come to the ordinances of His saints. Oh, for an evening glimpse of Him! Oh, to sup with Him tonight! Morning, June 20th For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve. Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. Amos chapter 9, verse 9. 
Every sifting comes by divine command and permission. Satan must ask before he can lay a finger upon Job. Nay, more, in some sense, our siftings are directly the work of heaven. For the text says, I will sift the house of Israel. Satan, like a drudge, may hold the sieve, hoping to destroy the corn. But the overruling hand of the master is accomplishing the purity of the grain by the very process which the enemy intended to be destructive. Precious but much sifted corn of the Lord's floor be comforted by the blessed fact that the Lord directeth both flail and sieve to his own glory and to thine eternal profit. The Lord Jesus will surely use the fan which is in his hand and will divide the precious from the vile. All are not Israel that are of Israel. The heap on the barn floor is not clean provender, and hence the winnowing process must be performed. In the sieve, true weight alone has power. Husks and chaff, being devoid of substance, must fly before the wind, and only solid corn will remain. Observe the complete safety of the Lord's wheat. Even the least grain has a promise of preservation. God himself sifts, and therefore it is stern and terrible work. He sifts them in all places, among all nations. He sifts them in the most effectual manner, like as corn is sifted in a sieve. And yet for all this not the smallest, lightest, or most shriveled grain is permitted to fall to the ground. Every individual believer is precious in the sight of the Lord. A shepherd would not lose one sheep, nor a jeweler one diamond, nor a mother one child, nor a man one limb of his body, nor will the Lord lose one of his redeemed people. However little we may be, if we are the Lord's, we may rejoice that we are preserved in Christ Jesus. Evening, June 20th. Straightway they took their nets and followed him. Mark chapter 1, verse 18. When they heard the call of Jesus, Simon and Andrew obeyed at once without demur. If we would always, punctually and with resolute zeal, put in practice what we hear upon the spot or at the first fit occasion, our attendance at the means of grace and our reading of good books could not fail to enrich us spiritually. He will not lose his loaf who has taken care at once to eat it. Neither can he be deprived of the benefit of the doctrine who has already acted upon it. Most readers and hearers become moved so far as to purpose to amend. But alas, the proposal is a blossom which has not been knit, and therefore no fruit comes of it. They wait, they waver, and then they forget, till like the ponds in nights of frost, when the sun shines by day, they are only thawed in time to be frozen again. That fatal tomorrow is blood-red with the murder of fair resolutions. It is the slaughterhouse of the innocents. We are very concerned that our little book of evening readings should not be fruitless, and therefore we pray that readers may not be readers only, but doers of the word. The practice of truth is the most profitable reading of it. 
Should the reader be impressed with any duty while perusing these pages, let him hasten to fulfill it before the holy glow has departed from his soul, and let him leave his nets and all that he has sooner than be found rebellious to the master's call. Do not give place to the devil by delay. Haste while opportunity and quickening are in happy conjunction. Do not be caught in your own nets, but break the meshes of worldliness and away where glory calls you. Happy is the writer who shall meet with readers resolved to carry out his teachings. His harvest shall be a hundredfold, and his master shall have great honor. Would to God that such might be our reward upon these brief meditations and hurried hints. Granted, O Lord, unto thy servant. Morning, June 21st. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Psalm 45, verse 2. The entire person of Jesus is but as one gem, and his life is all along but one impression of the seal. He is altogether complete, not only in his several parts, but as a gracious, all-glorious whole. His character is not a mass of fair colors mixed confusedly, nor a heap of precious stones laid carelessly one upon another. He is a picture of beauty and a breastplate of glory. In him all the things of good repute are in their proper places, and assist in adorning each other. Not one feature in his glorious person attracts attention at the expense of others but he is perfectly and altogether lovely. O Jesus, thy power, thy grace, thy justice, thy tenderness, thy truth, thy majesty, and thine immutability make up such a man, or rather such a God-man, as neither heaven nor earth hath seen elsewhere. Thy infancy, thy eternity, thy sufferings, thy triumphs, thy death, and thine immortality are all woven in one glorious tapestry, without seam or rent. Thou art music without discord. Thou art many, and yet not divided. Thou art all things, and yet not diverse. As all the colors blend into one resplendent rainbow, so all the glories of heaven and earth meet in thee, and unite so wondrously that there is none like thee in all things. Nay, if all the virtues of the most excellent were bound in one bundle, they could not rival thee, thou mirror of all perfection. Thou hast been anointed with the holy oil of myrrh and cassia, which thy God hath reserved for thee alone. And as for thy fragrance, it is as the holy perfume, the like of which none other can ever mingle, even with the art of the apothecary. Each spice is fragrant, but the compound is divine. O sacred symmetry, O rare connection, of many perfects to make one perfection. O heavenly music, where all parts do meet in one sweet strain to make one perfect sweet. Evening, June 21st. The foundation of God standeth sure. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 The foundation upon which our faith rests is this, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, 
not imputing their trespasses unto them. The great fact on which genuine faith relies is that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and that Christ also hath suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, who himself bare our sins in his own body on the tree, for the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. In one word, the great pillar of the Christian's hope is substitution. The vicarious sacrifice of Christ for the guilty, Christ being made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, Christ offering up a true and proper expiatory and substitutionary sacrifice in the room, place, and stead of as many as the Father gave him, who are known to God by name and are recognized in their own hearts by their trusting in Jesus. This is the cardinal fact of the gospel. If this foundation were removed, what could we do? But it standeth firm as the throne of God. We know it. We rest on it. We rejoice in it. And our delight is to hold it, to meditate upon it, and to proclaim it, while we desire to be actuated and moved by gratitude for it in every part of our life and conversation. In these days a direct attack is made upon the doctrine of the atonement. Men cannot bear substitution. They gnash their teeth at the thought of the Lamb of God bearing the sin of man. But we, who know by experience the preciousness of this truth, will proclaim it in defiance of them, confidently and unceasingly. We will neither dilute it, nor change it, nor fritter it away in any shape or fashion. It shall still be Christ, a positive substitute, bearing human guilt and suffering in the stead of men. We cannot, dare not give it up, for it is our life, and despite every controversy, we feel that, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Morning, June 22nd. He shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. Christ himself is the builder of his spiritual temple, and he has built it on the mountains of his unchangeable affection, his omnipotent grace, and his infallible truthfulness. But as it was in Solomon's temple, so in this. The materials need making ready. There are the cedars of Lebanon, but they are not framed for the building. They are not cut down and shaped and made into those planks of cedar whose odiferous beauty shall make glad the courts of the Lord's house in paradise. There are also the rough stones still in the quarry. They must be hewn thence and squared. All this is Christ's own work. Each individual believer is being prepared and polished and made ready for his place in the temple. But Christ's own hand performs the preparation work. Afflictions cannot sanctify, excepting as they are used by him to this end. Our prayers and efforts cannot make us ready for heaven apart from the hand of Jesus, who fashioneth our hearts aright. As in the building of Solomon's temple, there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house, because all was brought perfectly ready for the exact spot it was to occupy, so is it with the temple which Jesus builds. The making ready is all done on earth. 
when we reach heaven, there will be no sanctifying us there, no squaring us with affliction, no planing us with suffering. No, we must be made meet here. All that Christ will do beforehand. And when he has done it, we shall be ferried by a loving hand across the stream of death and brought to the heavenly Jerusalem to abide as eternal pillars in the temple of our Lord. Beneath his eye and care the edifice shall rise, majestic, strong, and fair, and shine above the skies. Evening, June 22nd. That those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27. We have many things in our possession at the present moment which can be shaken, and it ill becomes a Christian man to set much store by them, for there is nothing stable beneath these rolling skies. Change is written upon all things. Yet we have certain things which cannot be shaken, and I invite you this evening to think of them, that if the things which can be shaken should all be taken away, you may derive real comfort from the things that cannot be shaken, which will remain. Whatever your losses have been, or may be, you enjoy present salvation. You are standing at the foot of His cross, trusting alone in the merit of Jesus' precious blood, and no rise or fall of the markets can interfere with your salvation in Him. No breaking of banks, no failures and bankruptcies can touch that. Then you are a child of God this evening. God is your Father. No change of circumstances can ever rob you of that. Although by losses brought to poverty and the stripped bare, you can say, He is my Father still. In my Father's house are many mansions, therefore will I not be troubled. You have another permanent blessing, namely, the love of Jesus Christ. He, who is God and man, loves you with all the strength of his affectionate nature. Nothing can affect that. The fig tree may not blossom, and the flocks may cease from the field. It matters not to the man who can sing, My beloved is mine, and I am his. Our best portion and richest heritage we cannot lose. Whatever troubles come, let us play the man. Let us show that we are not such little children as to be cast down by what may happen in this poor fleeting state of time. Our country is Emmanuel's land. Our hope is above the sky, and therefore, calm as the summer's ocean, we will seek the wreck of everything earth-born, and yet rejoice in the God of our salvation. Morning, June 23rd. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Hosea chapter 7 verse 8. A cake not turned is uncooked on one side, and so Ephraim was, in many respects, untouched by divine grace. Though there was some partial obedience, there was very much rebellion left. My soul, I charge thee, see whether this be thy case. Art thou thorough in the things of God? Has grace gone through the very center of thy being so as to be felt in its divine operations in all thy powers, thy actions, thy words, and thy thoughts? To be sanctified, spirit, soul, and body, should be thine aim and prayer. And although sanctification may not be perfect in thee anywhere in degree, 
yet it must be universal in its action. There must not be the appearance of holiness in one place and reigning sin in another, else thou too wilt be a cake not turned. A cake not turned is soon burnt on the side nearest the fire, and although no man can have too much religion, there are some who seem burnt black with bigoted zeal for that part of truth which they have received, or are charred to a cinder with a vainglorious pharisaic ostentation of those religious performances which suit their humor. The assumed appearance of superior sanctity frequently accompanies a total absence of all vital godliness. The saint in public is a devil in private. He deals in flour by day and in soot by night. The cake which is burned on one side is dough on the other. If it be so with me, O Lord, turn me. Turn my unsanctified nature to a fire of thy love, and let it feel the sacred glow, and let my burnt side cool a little, while I learn my own weakness and want of heat when I am removed from thy heavenly flame. Let me not be found a double-minded man, but one entirely under the powerful influence of reigning grace. For well I know, if I am left like a cake unturned, am and not on both sides the subject of thy grace, I must be consumed forever amid everlasting burnings. Evening, June 23rd, Waiting for the Adoption, Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Even in this world saints are God's children, but men cannot discover them to be so, except by certain moral characteristics. The adoption is not manifested, the children are not yet openly declared. Among the Romans, a man might adopt a child and keep it private for a long time. But there was a second adoption in public, when the child was brought before the constituted authorities, its former garments were taken off, and the father who took it to be his child gave it raiment suitable to its new condition of life. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We are not yet arrayed in the apparel which befits the royal family of heaven. We are wearing in this flesh and blood just what we wore as the sons of Adam. But we know that when he shall appear, who is the firstborn among many brethren, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. Cannot you imagine that a child taken from the lowest ranks of society and adopted by a Roman senator would say to himself, I long for the day when I shall be publicly adopted. Then I shall leave off these Phlebian garments and be robed as becomes my senatorial rank. Happy in what he has received, for that very reason he groans to get the fullness of what is promised him. So it is with us today. We are waiting till we shall put on our proper garments, and shall be manifested as the children of God. We are young nobles, and have not yet worn our coronets. We are young brides, and the marriage day is not yet come, and by the love our spouse bears us, we are led to long and sigh for the bridal morning. Our very happiness makes us groan after more. Our joy, like a swollen spring, longs to well up like an Iceland geyser, leaping to the skies, and it heaves and groans within our spirit for want of space and room by which to manifest itself to men. 
End of June 17th to June 23rd. Recording by Jay Ludwig, Minneapolis, Minnesota.